Welcome to Alligator Preserves. I'm Laurel McCarg, your host. And today I always have such, such special guests. Today you're going to meet author extraordinaire Todd Fonstock. Todd. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. So good to see you again. It's been a while. When was the last time we saw each other? Gosh, the last time we saw each other face-to-face, I'm going to have to guess it was Georgetown, the Georgetown uh, Christmas book nook thing. Yes. I guess. I believe, I believe that's right. I met you there, I believe, for the first time at the Georgetown Christmas Book Nook. Um, Jerry Fabianic, our friend, yes, has put these Jerry. together in the past. We missed it this past year. There's a possibility it might go this year. I'm, yes, I'm crossing no, my fingers. No guarantees. I'm crossing my fingers too. And I've seen you at a couple Comic Con, a Denver Comic Con, a Denver Pop Culture Con. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I think Denver Pop Culture Con didn't happen last year, and I think it got changed this year. I haven't looked into that, but I was at the Albuquerque Comic Con less than a month ago, um, oh. a little over a month ago, oh. um, in uh, in June. So that was my first con after COVID. It was so so fantastic to get back out there, um, and I Ooh. think the fans were hungry. They were they were. <laughs> So many people there, just doing all kinds of all of the things that they probably had been missing for a year. Or so. Well, just to let you know, this is the T-shirt I got when the when the 2021 was I canceled. I recognize that. Yes, character. and of course it says "all masked up with no place to cosplay" on the back. <laughs> <laughs> I was sad to have missed that, but at least I got the T-shirt. But just to let you know, Fan Expo Denver, I believe, is having an event Halloween weekend. So yeah, I'll, I'll I'll send you the information. It's Please. still in the works. It's still in the works. And I would love to see you there. But let's get into you. All right. When the first book that I read of yours was called Charlie Fiction. And I bought this at the Georgetown Christmas Market. And first of all, I saw this sexy cover. And <laughs> I read an amnesiac time traveler, a vengeful ghost, a race to save humanity. What was your inspiration for this? Oh, there's a story there. Um, so, so Charlie Fiction started out as uh, almost a social rant for me. Like I was just kind of like there were certain things that I was uh, ranting about in my mind, and I was in the mood for something that wasn't fantasy. So I just started jotting down these, these thoughts. Right. And uh, for the longest time I've considered doing a non-fantasy book. And for those of you who don't know my work, I am like 90% epic high fantasy. Um, epic where, fa- high and urban fantasy is uh, what well, your site I, says. Urban fantasy. I actually don't do too much urban fantasy. I mean, Charlie Fick- Fiction is, but like I said, it was an anomaly for me. I was just, uh, I was just kind of jotting some things down and I probably had three or four chapters and I've got this really close, uh, writers group. Um, these, these two friends of mine that are part of my writers group, the sparkling hammers, we call ourselves. And I was just taking these random chapters down to them and reading them and, and they were enjoying them, but I had no idea where the book was supposed to go. It was just this, this sort of social ranting I was doing, right? And then I believe it was, I can't remember what year it was, 2019, 2019 Pikes Peak Writers Conference. I went and um, my former agent, Donald Moss, was there and we ended up connecting up and and talking in the lobby. And I was telling him I was working on uh, another book in the Whisper Prince series mm-hmm. and I was working on a, a different project. And he said, so, okay, so, okay, so, so you're working on these sequels to these things that you've done, but what's the book? What's the book? that you haven't written yet that has a million readers waiting for it. And this little social rant that I had in the back of my head sort of sprung up in the back of my mind. And I was like, well, I got this idea for this, this time traveler and a ghost. And he's like sitting in his living room and there's a knock at the door and he gets up and he goes, and there's the woman that he and his best friend killed 16 years ago. And he's like, 
I got chills. You should write that. So that very day, after I was done with that conversation with him, I went up to my hotel room and I wrote, I, I took that parts of that social rant that I had. And I wrote that idea that had come to me when I was talking to Donald Moss and came up with the idea, the, the vehicle for time travel in that story. And I got done and I was like, that may be the first brilliant thing I've ever written. I think that's actually brilliant. Of course, I can't know that it's brilliant because I just got done writing it and I'm probably just blowing smoke uh, you know, at myself, but I should call somebody and see if they think that it's brilliant. So I called up my friend, Chris Mandeville, who is who is uh, one, of, one of the two people in my writer's group, the Sparkling Hammers writer's group. And I said, where are you? She's like, uh, I'm down in the lobby. What's going on? I'm like, I think I wrote something brilliant. You have to come read it. And she's like, okay, I'll be there in like two seconds. And so she comes up and she reads it and she's like, that's brilliant. And I'm like, I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> Anyways. So the, the, the vehicle for time travel, the time travel in the story was made then. And then I went home and over the course of the next 17 days, just could not stop writing. And I wrote the whole rough draft in 17 days. It took me like two and a half months to revise it after I got done. But I mean, like the whole story just came pouring out. Um, and it was the fastest novel I'd ever written at that, at that point. Because it's brilliant. And if you had asked me <laughs> if I had been in the lobby too, I would have read it and said, this is so good because again, it is, it's so different. And I mean, from page one, you're just like, what? What is happening here and what's going to happen next? It was amazing. Did you How see many, it coming? Because for did, those of the people out there who haven't read it, there's a twist. There is a twist. We're not going to talk about it. But, okay. And no, and no, which which makes it even, even more brilliant. It's just, it was just so good. Oh my gosh. Love it. Love it. Charlie Fiction. Thank so, you. So glad you liked it. When did you know you had to write? And, you know, you oh, have, I, I think you have, I think you have an interesting early life background. Um, yeah. I, I had some adventures when I was younger. Um, I was, um, I don't know. I, I cannot recall at the moment. I'll let that simmer in the back of my mind and see if it pops up for me, but I cannot recall at the moment when I knew that I had to write, but I do remember the moment that I decided I was going to write. And that happened when I was a senior in high school. Um, I was a big uh, epic fantasy reader, as you might guess. Uh, lots of Terry Brooks and the Shannara Chronicles and and Piers Anthony and the Xanth Chronicles and Split Infinity and um, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman Dragonlance Chronicles. I was just into all of that, right? But what I wanted was a, a fantasy story with more action in it. That was, that was, I remember that specific soundbite in my own head. And so... Uh, when I started writing my first novel at age 18 in my independent study class, I was going to have more action. It was going to have tons and tons of action. The, the hero was this swashbuckling hero who was going to be the best at this and the best at that and the best at everything. Um, I have come since to realize that having a character that is completely flawless and the best at everything is really not the best choice for a story. But what did I know at age 18? And I wrote that novel and I thought it was the best thing ever. And uh, when I looked back on it a few years later, I just, I cringe at how bad it was, but I thought it was awesome. So I wrote book two and that one was also horrible, but I thought it was awesome. And so I wrote book three and just, you know, step and repeat. Um, and I, and I, I, you know, at this point I'm just really enjoying what I do and, and getting some, some really cool positive feedback this year has been, nice. well, I love the fact that you don't have to deal with the whole imposter syndrome, you know, believing in yourself from day one. <laughs> I love that you think that I don't have to deal with the imposter syndrome. <laughs> well, I, I, th I believe you've proven yourself. So how many books do you have out there? Like 17 standalones and, and lots of. I just wrote my 20th this year, but it won't come out until December 7th. You have a new one coming out? Oh, oh don't tell me yet. Is, don't even. I, I actually, believe it or not, I can't tell you about it yet. I am oh. under a non-disclosure agreement and I cannot tell you about it, but oh, it, now I'm, can, <laughs> now I'm ridiculously excited. It, I can and again, tell you that it comes out on the 7th, on the 7th of December, December. Oh, Christmas. Our, that's going to be number one on my Christmas list, whatever it is, I'm going to buy it. You have many, many accolades too. What was your most recent accolade for your, for your books and your writing? 
Actually, I won the Colorado Authors League um, Writing Excellence Award for 2021 um, for Tower of the Four. Um, that's this one. And also, it was also a finalist for the Colorado Book Award for the, the one that's um, put on by the state. So I sna slap these stickers on. They give you these cool stickers to slap on your book to show. Um, so this one is the the winner. And then this one is just a, one of three. I was uh, of the three finalists for fantasy uh, for the Colorado Book Award. Very, very excited and very proud of both of those. Um, it's been it's been a long time coming. I've been applying for those awards for years now. And it was, like I said, I've been getting some really positive feedback this year. And it's it's been nice. It you can also, sorry, go ahead. Oh, so you didn't apply for your first books that you realized were horrible? You didn't send, submit those for any awards? <laughs> I, I I didn't even realize there were awards back when I was 18. I didn't know that that was something that one did. It was uh, submit them to uh, award award uh, organizations. <laughs> but, but I was going to say, I mean, it's really great to get that feedback, but it can also be, uh, it can also be detrimental. I didn't write for three months after I got nominated for the Colorado book award. And the reason was like, this is part of a series, right? And so I was writing episode six. So this is episodes one through three. This, this particular volume is episodes one through three. And I had episode four and five written and I had episode six, you know, pretty much rough draft when I got the news that Tower of the Four Champions Academy was uh, nominated for the Colorado Book Award. <laughs> and I went back the next day to look at my rough draft and I was like, oh, this is horrible. It's not nearly as good as what I put out before. I've got to make it as good as what I put out before. It can't be any worse. I mean, that would just be horrible. And it just locked me up. I just got, you know, creatively vapor locked for for good, a good two and a half to three months. Um, so wow, wow. I, I go, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, my my husband and I, Mike and I, listen to podcasts all the time, and we were listening to one the other day talking about internal versus external motivation, right? Yeah. And the fact that awards, external motivation, can actually stop you from doing things, and you just demonstrated that right now. Yep. I mean, everybody talks about the negative reviews, you know, like, because if you put yourself out there, you're going to get negative reviews. There's just no way around that. There are going to be people out in the world, probably a lot of people out in the world that don't like what you do for whatever reason, they don't like it. And uh, one of the wisest things I ever heard concerning writing was from Margaret Weiss, who I actually ended up befriending later uh, in my my career after I was uh, such a fanboy of the Dragonlance Chronicles. Um, but but uh, Margaret Weiss said to me, she said, you can't listen to the bad reviews. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. You know, don't let him get you down, right? You got to keep going. And she's like, but you also can't listen to the good reviews either. And I was like, why wouldn't I listen to the good reviews? Why? That seems so silly. I get it now. I get it now. It's like, no matter what it is, good or bad, don't let it knock you off the notion that your job, my job is to get my butt into the chair and write some more you know, to do my work, to just do the work. I've got this, actually, I've got this, uh, this thing on, I've got this little chalk wall and it, one of the things that it's at the top of my chalk wall, it says, no fear, no doubt, do the work. That's nice. one of my mantras that I repeat in the morning. A little bit of press field in there. <laughs> do the work. Yeah. That's right. Do the work. So if I were to tell you that I loved also summer of the fetch, would that would that lock you up for doing any more no, work? No, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I would press forward. Feel free. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take that one on the chin and I'll just push forward as best I can. So that one, again, and, and what I want to talk about, and we're going to get to some more of your books, but your narratives make me want to do things. I mean, how crazy is that? That's that's in a good way, right? Not like in the a good way. Told me to do these things. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it doesn't make me want to jump off a cliff or anything. Oh, good. But, okay. but just the whole you you engage your reader so much in the action, and again, more cowbells, right? You can never have enough cowbells or or action, <laughs> and so you do that. You you grab me and you pull me along up that cliff to the edge, and uh, some of the I read it last summer. Um, on my Kindle. And I, it was a blast. And, you know, my husband and I have done some, some climbing in back in, back in the day, you know, before fingers started getting wonky, <laughs> right. but so much fun. And, and I could relate to it so much. I mean, you, 
you did a fabulous job. Well, thank you so much. I, I, Summer of the Fetch will always have a fond place in my heart. And I think because it's, it's partly autobiographical. It's totally, it's totally a work of fiction, but there are elements and details and things that came from my actual life. Like I did go to high school in Durango and I did graduate in 1988 and my family did split apart um, when I was uh, 16. Uh, and, and by the time I was 17, I was living in our house all alone. Um, I think it was like, maybe it was 18. Anyways, I was living in our house all alone. My mother had not died. She's still alive and well. Um, but uh, I, I changed that part for the story just to kind of take that, take her out of the equation because my mom was hugely influential in my life at that time. I mean, she she was uh, the anchor that that kept me um, moving forward. And for the the sake of this particular story, it needed to be the fetch and his best friend that moved him forward. And if I had entered my mother in as a major character, it would have changed the entire dynamic of the story. But anyways. I digress. Um, a lot of those things are true. My dad did live in Malaysia. And uh, and so a lot of those elements were taken straight from my my own life. But of course, you know, there's a lot of fantasy and I never did climb Half Dome with or without ropes. <laughs> um, and I was not a studly rock climber. I did some rock climbing, but even for some of the, the more detailed uh, aspects of rock climbing, the different terminology and the different routes and knowing the, the actual rock that I was talking about in Zion, in uh, Yosemite, and in Joshua Tree. I had to pull from the expertise of people who actually were hotshot ride climbers back when I was in college. My friend Giles and then my wife's uh, brother, Brian, um, both were were resources for me. And they they kind of came in and, and gave me a lot of information that to fill in the, the holes where I didn't know. Well, you wrote somewhere that your mother was magic. Yes. My mother was and is magic. And is magic. Yeah, I have so many stories about that. Is that going to be in the next book that comes out? You know, I don't. So, so you can't tell me. You'll have no, to. No, I mean, me. no. I mean, like ordinary magic was. Uh, sorry, uh, I, I'm 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 jumping ahead of the thing, but I mean, and we're getting that next. Was one of my anomalies. Charlie Fiction was one of my anomalies, and Ordinary Magic was one of my anomalies. These are books that essentially jump in, not on my normal radar, and then kind of take me by the throat and make me write them. Uh, and then I go back to writing fantasy. So I'm probably like, you know, one anomaly, anomalous book to every four fantasy novels at this point. Uh, so who knows what my next anomalous book will be? It could be about that. It totally could be. All right. Well, you need to update your bio because right now all you have, all you have is all <laughs> the books from your high epic and, and urban fantasy. And so all of a sudden you write a nonfiction book called Ordinary Magic. And before your first nonfiction book, how do you do this? <laughs> and so before we even get to a discussion of it, would you read something for our audience? Sure. To give them sure. a taste of Ordinary right. Magic. Show us, show us your cover. Because again, I, as soon as I heard about it, I wanted it right away. And so I downloaded it on my Kindle. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you have a copy of your I book. have many. <laughs> you have many copies. I go I'm to gonna, Comic-Con. So I have I'm, I'm going to get an autographed copy for you next time I see you. So would you read for us? Absolutely. Audience? And just Thank you. stop me uh, when you need me to stop. I know we've got only a limited amount of time today, but I will start with chapter one. Chapter one, Magic Hunter. I've been searching for magic my whole life, I think. It happened in unconscious ways when I was a child. My imagination was like an extra friend following me around, whispering in my ear, shaping what I saw. I'd search for dinosaurs behind our gold velvet couch. I'd telepathically talk to my dog Sprock and see his reactions the way I wanted to see them, like he was responding to my mental command to run across the backyard or leap atop the stack of pallets my dad had brought home from work. I'd feel cold wafts from the upstairs attic and know it was a place I didn't want to go. There were ebbs and flows to things, energy I felt or imagined I felt, that I thought everyone could feel. I was drawn to these moments where imagination and reality blurred together, and I remember trying to explain it to my mom. She watched me and listened, and I felt she understood me. Looking back, I think she just liked the idea of a six-year-old being able to feel magic but her interest encouraged me. 
I wanted to stand at the center of that crossroads of reality and imagination. I wanted to be a part of it. I could never have cerebralized it when I was six years old, but I'm convinced now I was unconsciously looking for magic. And I remember when I consciously chose to look for magic. I was 14, living in Durango, Colorado, and my parents gathered me and my siblings in the dining room. They were getting a divorce, they said. They handed the news to us like we were adults, like a statement of the facts would make us understand. But I don't remember their reasons. At that age, my rational mind was a fledgling thing with little control over me. Whereas my emotions were wild and strong, they galloped like terrified horses, scattering every which way at the news. My little sister, five years younger than me, just grinned her happy little grin like nothing was wrong. I don't think she understood what was really happening. My older brother seemed to understand just fine, but he came to a conclusion that confounded me. Well, it's about time, he said. That was the opposite of how I felt. I didn't think it was about time. I mean, I'd sat at this table countless times listening to Top 40 radio while doing my homework or playing D&D with my friends. I'd read Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars and Lloyd Alexander's The Book of Three in that bay window, which my father had installed himself. I'd been filled with a sense of permanence and contentment here, never once imagining a future that didn't include me growing up in this house with two parents who loved each other. Well, I think it sucks, I said, and that's all I said. I got up from the table and ran to my room, imagining the house coming apart around me, all the boards becoming unstuck and floating up into the blue sky until there was just me running down a hallway with no walls, no ceiling, and nowhere to go. Two days after my parents dropped the bomb, I stood at the edge of a precipice looking down at the Animus River. I was so scared, and I hated it. I wanted it to stop. I wanted to charge at the fear like there was like it was something tangible. Like if I could just burst through it, it would go away. I thought about the most frightening thing I could do, something worse than my parents splitting up. I wondered what it would be like to jump. I wondered what it would be like to die. I didn't jump, but I still felt like I was falling. I felt like I'd leaned too far back in a chair, right where I should jerk and catch my balance, except I hadn't, but I hadn't hit the floor yet either. That stomach-hollowing, scalp-prickling fear just went on and on. I stood there at the edge of the cliff, looking across the river, past the beginnings of the little industrial park south of Durango to the closest foothills and then to the mighty mountains beyond. A whole world. A whole scary world out there, and the reason I felt like I was falling was because I didn't have a safety net anymore. What my brother was ready for at age 16, and what my little sister didn't realize at age 9, was that our lives were over. That was what our parents had just told us, really. The magic of our family had been fractured, and it was going to simply come apart in pieces. I wanted to die. I didn't want to live in this constant fear, didn't want to go back to school, didn't want to go home. I had nowhere to turn, and I was crawling out of my skin with a need to know what came next. Except there were no answers. There was only that distant, beautiful horizon, and I just kept staring at it. I finally decided to go to school, decided I'd take just one step and see what happened. It couldn't be worse than this feeling, could it? And if that one step worked out, I'd take another. I resigned myself to do whatever happened next, one little bit at a time. And if it all became too much, I promised I'd come back to this place. Not to jump, maybe, but to cross that bridge, walk through that industrial park, start up into those foothills, and keep walking until something happened. Until the universe showed me that there was a reason for me to be alive. I'd keep walking until I found something magical, or until I died. That would be my jump instead. That would be my way through the fear, a one-finger salute to the universe, a dare for her to do her worst. That was the first moment I consciously decided to search for magic. It was wrapped up in so many things, the breaking of my family foundation, my wild imagination, the cold fear of a harsh world closing in on me, and the tingling twisting changes of puberty. 
But that was the first moment I made a decision to shape the future of my own life. Up to that moment, it had been my parents' job. But obviously, they didn't know what they were doing any better than I did. There was no safety net. I decided two things then. First, I was going to challenge the universe. Maybe I wouldn't go walking into the mountains today, but I was going to step into this scary world where nothing was certain and dare it to kill me. I was going to take one step. And if I survived, I'd take another. And those single steps would be the only thing that mattered. I wouldn't look two or 10 or 20 steps down the road. Planning for the future was a fiction. My parents had shown me that. I would look only at the one step, and I wasn't going to care about the consequences, which meant I could literally do anything. So I decided to chase the ridiculous. I would search for the magic that had tantalized me all my life. And I didn't mean, oh, what a magical moment kind of magic. I wanted fireballs and dragons and telekinesis. I wanted magic that would make others open their mouths in surprise. My second resolution was, I was never going to have kids. I wouldn't put a child through this. I was never going to offer a safe home and then rip it away. And since I could never guarantee safety, even for myself, it was best that I simply never have children. I was alone now. I was a magic hunter. The next 16 years took me on many adventures. I traveled throughout the U.S. and to exotic places halfway around the world. I met good friends and best friends. I took many lovers. And with every step, I looked for that magic I craved. I never quite found it. I never threw a fireball anywhere except in my own mind. I never moved an object across the room without touching it. I never brushed my hands along the scales of a dragon except in the pages of novels I read or novels I wrote. In the summer of 2003, I married the love of my life. That winter, I became a father. And in the spring of 2006, we had our second child. Up until then, I'd been a flighty adventurer prone to leaping into the wind at a moment's notice. I'd never held a job for more than 16 months. My default setting was to dodge and brush past danger. But this time, hands clasped with my wife, we held that safe home together. I dug in my heels and we created for our children what I had lost so long ago. This is the story of how, when my son turned the age I had been when my life fell apart, we hiked the Colorado Trail together. It's a story of how I found the magic I'd been looking for, an ordinary magic that had been there all along. I always get a little choked up. I'm getting uh, choked up. <laughs> when I read that chapter, <clears throat> whether to myself or to somebody else. Anyways, that's the beginning of Ordinary Magic. And of course, ironically, the first chapter is not much like the rest of the book. It's sort of a bookend that then starts a journey. It's, it's actually what the cover looks like. It's actually a journey on the Colorado Trail with, this is actually my son right here. That's a picture of him on the trail that I took. Um, and... Uh, and the, the things that we go through together, him, you know, becoming, uh, coming of age at age 14 and me sort of coming of age again at age 50, uh, going through this hike and, uh, you know, how the physical challenges for him, he just ate them up like chips. You know, he's just like, you know, he's my son. I describe him later. He's, he is just so physically capable and he always has been. Um, so the, the physical challenge was just, he's like, you know, just doing it, but the mental challenges are different. There's a lot of mental challenges. And I think I would like to think that I, uh, weathered those a little bit better than, uh, than he did. Well, I, and again, I'm like, <laughs> there must be something in, in, in the area. <laughs> but that that gives you listeners out there a taste for Todd's writing, which just grabs you. And I, I laughed out loud so many times while I'm reading this book. And typically I read at night in bed and my husband's reading something like, you know, Lincoln or a president's thing. And I'll be laughing and he'll be, he'll ask, you know, what are you laughing about? And I'll read him a passage. <laughs> And because they're just wonderful. And then the choked up parts, you know, when maybe it's you write, it's your writing, you, you're the way you express very emotional things so subtly 
just grabs me and it'll grab other readers too. It's spectacular. So you really expose a lot in this book. There are so many personal stories in here. The story about your wife and what happened to her, and we don't have to go into it in detail, but holy mackerel. That is my hero. She is, you know, she, she, you can't. Uh, so is it okay if I, I tell? Sure. Yes. I mean, don't tell everything, but I mean, again, you, you talk, you tell the story that just w- was shocking to me. Yeah. Well, it's a shocking story. Um, so uh, for, for those of you listening out there back when she was in college or just after college, my wife uh, was a pretty boss rock climber. I don't know if, if you know anything about rock climbing. Uh, she was leading five elevens, which is pretty hard to do. And she was uh, climbing in Boulder Canyon and she stepped back off of the cliff after she was cleaning uh, her equipment, stepped back to a step that wasn't there. And she fell 80 feet just to give you an idea. That's an eight story building. So the next time you have a chance to go to an eight story building and stand on the top of it, just imagine uh, how unlikely it would be that you survive. And she survived and there's a whole uh, truckload of things that she had to go through afterwards. But um, and it's it's in the book, but yeah, I mean, it's stunning. She's amazing. She's amazing, and I've been I've been rooting for her to write that story, write her own personal story for years now, and she wants to do it. She just hasn't uh, gotten to it, and I, I keep telling her, you know, I've got skills. I can help you. You know, I can help you with that if you want me to help you with it. So um, we're just waiting for the right moment, and she will tell her story in her own words. When the time is right, and and I will be fascinated to read it because, again, even just what you included in in Ordinary Magic stunned me and just, I mean, jaw-dropping, literally jaw-dropping. If you're just joining us now, listeners out there, we are talking with Todd Fonestock, author of so many books, including his most recent one, Ordinary Magic, which you have to buy. It is spectacular. And, oh gosh. All right. So back to the personal stories in there. So you tell a lot about your experiences, your struggling with your feet, your decisions, your determination, your dedication, and your son Dash, who, again, I agree with the, with the gal you met along the way that that's a great trail name, Dash. And that's just (laughs) Dash by itself, you know, Dash by itself is just a great trail name, but has he read this book? Has he read it since you published it? So ironically, uh, Dash, as brilliant as he is, is not really into reading. So um, I think he's read one of my books. It was Wild Mane. And it was a big one. It's the largest one that I have. Uh, But I don't think he's read Ordinary Magic uh, the book. He's heard chapters. I would rush down and say, okay, I'm portraying you like this. Are you okay with that? And he's like, okay, that's fine. You know, is there, I'm saying this, is it okay with it? He's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. So he's gotten, certainly gotten bits and parts of it, but he's not read it straight through to my knowledge. Well, that was going to be my question because again, you know, as a 14 year old, as a teenager, he struggles mentally in many ways with this whole Colorado trail epic and it was an epic and you know the packs the the challenges that you went through the the suffering the danger and there are times when he acts like a teenage boy and and you you portray that very honestly and i was wondering what his opinion was about that is was he okay with that and evidently he, you know he, was. he is he's he's such a cool kid um he he has a really good bead on himself and he always has like he he's he's never like never been one of those kids that i was worried that if he got into a pack of kids that were smoking cigarettes if he'd be like yeah i'll try one you know like so that they'll like me like he's never <laughs> like he's like this is the way that i am you know um which has caused some problems for him in the past and he's had uh, an evolution in personality uh, because of the problems that those caused. I mean, he he specifically consciously chose to take hold of that and go, okay, I need to adjust the way that I relate to people for this, that, and the other reason, because I want this effect. And he has seen amazing results with that, but no, he's, he's, he likes honesty 
Um, and I mentioned in the book, he hates bragging. So, uh, the fact that I'm talking about him in such a positive, uh, fashion to He'll hate a whole it. bunch of people, he's going to hate it. Um, <laughs> sorry, dash. Yeah, <laughs> he, he excels at, at lots of things. Um, but he tends to keep it like internal, you know, it's like I go and I do this for me and I do it as well as I can. Just to give you an idea, speaking of rock climbing, um, he's been uh, a climb climbing gym rat for the last two months. This whole summer, he's been going down to the climbing gym, Earth Treks, just up the street from us. And um, he is, uh, he's rocking V eights at this point there that's a bolder term um it's different than the the actual routes but that's probably like a 512 i'm thinking uh on, on a route which is two levels higher than i could ever climb at my best when i was in college just to give you an idea and he's 15 so he's got a talent for it and um i'm i'm excited that he's excited about it that's the main thing he's done a lot of things in his time and he's pretty good at whatever he turns his hand to the problem is None of it has ever really called to him. It's not been this sort of like, I got to go do that. But climbing seems to be holding his interest for a lot longer than usual. Has he read Summer of the Fetch? No. Well, he needs to read that. I so, know, right? Is, yeah. And so, Dash, if you're listening, <laughs> you you are an awesome kid. Just, just accept that. And I am so proud of you for everything that you did. And even in the whiny phases, what you, you know, during the, the CT thing, I was just so proud of your ultimate decisions and I'm just going to say that to the world and you just have to accept that. And um, yeah, read Summer of the Fetch. Your dad is a really good author. Well, I'm going to put that on an audiobook soon. So that might make it easier <laughs> for him. <laughs> amazing. Uh, just amazing. And so again, the book made me want to hike the Colorado Trail. Well, you totally should. Just get the right shoes. I know they tell you that and they told me that and I heard that and I knew that and I ignored that and boy, did I pay the price, paid it big time. So get the right shoes. I'll get the right shoes and um, they might have to be electric blue. They have, I mean, okay. So I got to tell you a side story. Uh, one year later, almost exactly. I went back to Buena Vista where I got the, um, the electric blue shoes at this fabulous store called the trailhead. They're like a, a climbing uh, store, outdoor store. Uh, and that's where I got those, where those shoes saved my life, which there's a whole chapter that uh, is dedicated to the electric blue shoes that saved my life. They're, um, they're ultra Olympus fours, right? And uh, as you might guess, after hiking about 300 miles on my ultra Olympus fours, they were done. You know, I mean, they did their job so well and then they were done. I tried to wear them at home. I was so excited to wear them at home, but they're like, the heels are all done in at this point. I mean, 300 miles on any shoes is probably going to do them in. Um, so I went back the next year, just a few months ago, uh, and wanted to get another pair of electric blue shoes. Well, this year's ultra Olympus fours are not electric blue. They are red and white and that's fine. No. They look great, uh, but they're just, don't you hate blue. it when they do that? Here's what you need to do. Do you still have the electric blue ones? I do. Are you bronzing them or something? What you, you know, need to do, I should put them somewhere. What you need to do is you need to put them in a box with a copy of Ordinary Magic and send it to the company with a little letter saying, I would really love to replace Another my electric, of electric blue, blue shoes. shoes because you know they have to have some in their warehouse somewhere. Right. They probably have some old stock. Yeah. I should write them. I don't know you if I'm should. willing to give up my electric blue shoes that I took on the trail. Um, you know, unless they really, really want them, but I could send them a copy of the book. I could totally do that. A copy of the book and a picture of the shoes before and there after, maybe. If I, I do have a picture of them before. I do. I have a before and after picture. I, I think you need that. to do that. And you That's need to let idea. me know how that goes. That That's a great idea. idea. I know, right? On my, my ever expanding task list. <laughs> <laughs> so of all the things you've written and you're a pro prolific writer, do you remember what you've written? Like, do you ever go back and read a book that you wrote a long time ago and wonder who wrote this? Oh, no, but I do forget details. I forget details a lot. So for example, I'm writing the third book in the slate, uh, the, the uh, whisper print series. It's called the slate wizards. And um, I was, you know, writing a chapter and I talked about, you know, the character mentions, I'll see you at noon or whatever. And then at the same time, I was listening to the audiobook for the first book in this series. This is the third book. Slate Wizards is the third book. And I was listening to the first book and they don't have noon and midnight in, in this world. They've got, they've got high sun and deep dark. Those are the terms that they use for those uh, epochs of uh, night and day. And so those are the types of things that I forget when I'm in the mode, I'll, I'll just buzz right past that. But the general 
uh, course of the novel, I do not forget the story, but I still enjoy rereading it. I enjoy it every time. I think that's awesome. So I, because I love your writing so much and because I've read Charlie Fiction and Ordinary Magic and Summer of the Fetch, I decided I should try some of your other stuff. So I, I downloaded <laughs> Wild Mane. Oh, good. And I'm, how many chapters is it? Because it's on my Kindle. I don't even know. Oh, it's probably 60, maybe 70 chapters. It's my it's my longest book. All righty. Well, I'm, I'm well into it. And where did that come from? A story where reading is a crime yes. in this place. And there's this stone and there are the, there's these dragon, oh, all kinds of things. And I, and honest, honestly, I didn't think I'd like it because when I first opened the book and I saw all the different names and the pronunciations, the pronunciation guide. Yep. I thought this is going to be too much for my old brain, <laughs> but it's not because of the way you have it laid out. So where'd that come from? Oh, that, okay. So Wild Mane is so dear to my heart. I created that character when I was 18 and I had mentioned my parent, no, 17. I was 17. My parents had divorced and gone separate ways. They each went to different parts of California and I didn't want to leave Durango. So I ended up staying with my very good friend, Marvin Guyman, and his parents took me in and I lived there for a year. And while I was living there, you'll see, I've got my Dungeons and Dragons uh, shirt proudly displayed here. Um, And this is, this is the original, like I got to show the picture. So that's, that's the original box that I got wow. when I was in high school back in the 1980s. Um, so when That's I saw the shirt, I'm like, I want that. And Laura got it for me for my birthday. Um, but anyways, uh, I lived with him for an entire school year. And during that time, we played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. And this Metafay slash Wild Mane character that I came up with, that's the same character that's in that book. And I wrote an entire novel of when he got his power. No, it wasn't an entire novel. It was like 13, 14 chapters of a novel, now that I think of it, um, of when he first got his powers. The book that you're reading, he's like 1,064 years old or something like that. He's but only 18, really. But only, but he, but he looks 18 because he's, he's stopped aging at a certain point, right? So that that went through so many iterations. This was my journeyman piece. Like I wrote a lot of stuff that I thought was not good and it never saw the light of day, but wild Mane was always such a great, great, great story. And my skills had not caught up enough to tell it properly. Um, and so it went through draft after draft, after draft, after draft. And finally my skills started to catch up and I took that story and released it in 2018, the whole thing. Um, and you'll see it wind up because the first book is a lot of what my skills were back in like 2003, 2004. And then the Godspill is more like my skills were in 2015 and then Threads of Amarion and God of Dragons were, that's, that's about as up to date as it gets. You'll see the, the writing skills kind of, uh, evolve a little bit as, as you go forward through the book. Um, well, not I was going to ask you, I was yeah. going to ask you how your writing has evolved. How have you seen it oh. evolve? Man, it's so funny because when I was in high school and college, I thought what I did was awesome. And now you can ask my wife, when I get done with something, I go out to her. Like the first thing I say is like, I think this one sucks. I think it just sucks. I think I've, I finally like hit a rut and it sucks. And she doesn't say anything. And I'm like, aren't you going to respond? And finally, if I force her, because usually she just wants to, she doesn't want to be a part of the argument where I'm fighting myself. You know, it's like trying to be, you know, stepping in between a married couple that's bickering. You just don't do that. You know? Um, well, when, when my two sides of my brain are fighting, she's like, I'm not going to get into that fight. I'm just not, no matter what you try and do to draw me in. So finally she says, honey, you say this every time every time. And I, I don't have to, I have to go to work. I don't have time to <laughs> have you go through your process right here, right now about how you hate your book. And then three days from now, you're going to love it again. Like just, just sit down, have a cracker and just let it pass, you know? <laughs> um, so, but, but the cool thing is, is that I, I think I've gotten to a point where I, I know now I'm never going to be at the pinnacle of my abilities. Like I'm never going to be there because I will always continue climbing the mountain. There's always something new to learn. There is some new theory to 
implement. There's some new thing that you start to see because you've been writing and writing and writing and writing, and it starts to become obvious to you. I mean, like I would equate that to in the beginning when, when baby writers are doing their thing and they're, you know, writing their first novel and stuff like that, they'll have crutch words. For me, beautiful was a crutch word. I was writing fantasy and I wanted all of the people to be beautiful. So I use beautiful all the time, right? Until a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Liana from uh, college said, you use beautiful all the time and it doesn't mean anything by the 20th time you use it. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. I should come up with something different. So they're crutch words and you learn to identify those. So as soon as you have been writing enough, those words start to bore you because you're just tired of using them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you stop doing that. And that happens with other things like the way you construct sentences, the way you construct paragraphs, the way you construct entire segments of the story, you start to get bored with the old and the tired and the used and the things that you've done a million times. And that's, I feel when you really start kicking into creating something unique and, and wonderful, you know, I mean, like not to say that that stuff that isn't unique, isn't wonderful. Cause I've written a lot of not so unique things. I mean, come on, dragons have been done a million, million times, but people still love to read about dragons. Um, so, but, but, uh, those, those things, those, those skills start to develop and those eyes to be able to see the things that can turn a phrase, you know, a little bit better to make a paragraph a little bit more streamlined to make a description, you know, the way that Stephen King describes writing description always has stuck with me. And if you haven't written Stephen King's, uh, on writing, which is a it's book about writing, oh, excellent. It's fabulous. I mean, yeah. half of it is him talking about how he became a writer, but I like that part the best anyways. Um, and it really teaches you a lot about how to write just through watching how he kind of evolved, but he talks about description and how you you don't want to describe too little because then the reader is lost in time and space. But you also don't want to describe too much because one of the biggest advantages a writer has is their reader's imagination. Mm -hmm. So you just got to run them right to the edge and then let them take off into the wild field of wild, wildflowers. You know what I mean? You just got to let give them enough to get their imagination revving and then you let go of the reins and let them do the rest for you. I mean, that's why you hear time and again, the, the best book is always going to be better than the best movie. Like somebody who reads books, it's like, oh, this book was just so much more personal and I love this movie so much, but the book is just so personal to me because it was constructed with their imagination. That's why it's so personal. The readers are building this with the writer. It's, it's really kind of a collaborative effort in the end. Well, just hearing that your writing is getting better all the time. You, you've got a lifelong reader in me. However, how there's a, there's a however, um, I went online to look up all your books and see how many you had out there. And there's one that I will not buy. And I just, I have to apologize is lore master volume two. Yes. And you know why I'm not going to buy it. I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> because for the used paperback, I can buy it for $298 and 99 cents right now. <laughs> I can get you one for cheaper than that. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Somebody came up to me uh, at the at Albuquerque Comic Con and they saw that I was selling Loremaster and they're like, how much is that? I'm like, $12. They're like, well, I'll take one. I'm like, well, that was quick. Why that one? And they're like, yeah, I looked it up online and it's like 300 bucks. <laughs> I know. What is up with Amazon? I'll just say, what's up with Amazon? I don't even know. <laughs> Do you know, I mean, it's it's hilarious. Is, that, is it on Amazon for? The, it can't be on Amazon for three hundred. That's not. I I looked it up on Amazon. And it said oh, it like said buy used buy used paperback for two hundred ninety eight dollars and ninety nine cents. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get that one. I'll <laughs> I'll get one from you later <laughs> at a discount price. Absolutely. Well, let me just wrap this up by saying a couple things. First of all, listeners out there, if you have not read any of Todd Fonestock's works, you need to, you need to read them all because they're amazing, but particularly your latest one, uh, Ordinary Magic, and there's nothing ordinary about it. And what I want to say to people listening out there is that if you are a parent of a young child, read this, you have to read this because you're going to learn so many valuable lessons for what to do and what not to do. If you're a parent like I am of sons who are already grown, 
you're still going to get so much more out of it because as a parent, you're always a parent. I don't care how old your children are. And there are things that you can learn in there from you, Todd, the way you express things, the way you made your decisions that will help you. And if you are not a parent at all or are never going to be a parent, um, still read this because you're going to want Todd to be your father. You're going to wish Todd was your father. <laughs> yeah. It's just because I just didn't put in all the bad things that I do as a father. <laughs> well, you know, sincerely. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It was, it was incredible. So in my copy of Charlie fiction, you wrote to Laurel, what does your future look like? And I'm not going to tell you because this is about you, but what does your future look like, Todd? Oh, gosh. Uh, just that I get to keep writing. Um, I, I'm so grateful that I've had this span to be a full-time writer and I just want it to continue. I'd like to keep getting better. Um, I, I have gone through the cathartic phase of being an author. I mean, you have to write because it's a certain kind of catharsis for you. But after you do it a few times, or at least for me, after I've done it a few times, I've started to focus on what do the readers want? Like, what does a reader want from me when I'm writing a story? And so when I write a story, I think a lot more about that. And I'm hoping into the future to answer your question, um, to do more and more of that, to really position my stories such that they're even more accessible to the readers, that they even they address even more things that the readers want to see and hear and experience. Um, that's that's my hope, you know, and to continue building the skills that I think will never, never fully be complete. I don't imagine that I will ever reach a point where I'm like, finally, I've become a master writer. Like I just don't envision that ever happening. <laughs> That's There's wonderful. always another peak, another, another pinnacle and another peak to go to. Yes. And where can people find you? Uh, and so your work? toddfonestock.com is probably the best place to go find all of my stuff. Um, and uh, obviously Amazon's a good place. Uh, Tattered Cover is a great place to find my books as well locally here in Denver. They uh, they have a ton of my books uh, and are really good with consignment authors. So um, that's, a, that's a really good one. The Bookies, I love the Bookies here locally in town. Another great place. Uh, Maria's Bookshop in Durango. Uh, I've had a really good uh, time going down there from time to time to my hometown and doing book signings at Maria's Bookshop in Durango. Uh, those are some of my favorites. But anywhere, you can get them anywhere. And I will have links and photos to this episode and some really fun photos that you sent me. And <laughs> oh my gosh, we're not even going to talk about the great farting. But <laughs> oh, see, look, you talking oh, about it. Oh, oh, we're not, <laughs> it slipped not, out. No, just like the great farting. It's, it's, it slipped out. Oh my gosh. I was rolling. I was absolutely rolling. It is so, the very best in teenage body function humor. <laughs> so, so good. It just so real. The book was just so real. I just, I fell in love with your whole family reading that book. <sighs> thank All you. right. So thank you very much. I am a big fan. I will remain a big fan. I will have links and photos to all of this on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. Todd, I hope to see you at... Fan Expo Denver Halloween weekend. Yeah, send me the details on that. I've been seeing that pop up here and there, and I just, I've been so busy, I haven't had a chance to check it out. But if it's within a slot that I could go and be a vendor there, I will totally do it. I'll, I'll check it out and see. And again, fingers crossed that it happens. You know, we are still in a pandemic, which has, you know, changed a lot yeah. of things. I'm hating the double dip that's that's happening here. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. unfortunate, but. Yeah, but we're just going to keep writing and being creative and you keep doing what you're doing because you're doing fabulous things, Todd. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much for spending this show. Oh, I really appreciate you inviting me. This has been great. It was the, my pleasure. My pleasure. Hour, totally. Yeah. The and hour it just went like that, didn't it? Well, it did. It did. And when your new book comes out in December and after I buy it, we're going to have to do this again. And we're going to have to talk to you again because excellent. we're just going to have to. All right. Would love to do that. Thank you, everybody. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.